So we're in the second week of uh, this seven-week study in the Gospel of John. It's called Restoring Broken Signposts. It's based on a book by, as I said last week, one of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright. And the book is actually called Broken Signposts. And uh, as I said last week, I really encourage you, if you can, I really encourage you to get the book, hard copy, download it, uh, audio version, whatever it is because uh, you'll get so much more out of the series if you read the book. There's so much that N.T. Wright covers that we just can't do in this series. And the, and, and the book kind of serves as the framework in many respects for the way in which we're kind of going at this series and studying the book of John. Wright focuses on seven signposts. I would call them seven longings, seven signposts that, that point to what it means to be fully human, to point to what it means to be a human being, to be someone created by God. And the four longings or the four, or the the seven longings or the seven signposts are a longing for justice, talked about that last week, a longing for love, a longing for power, a longing for beauty, a longing for freedom, a longing for truth, and a longing for spirituality. And it's not just Christians that long for these seven things. Like all of humanity longs for these seven seven things. That's why you see these things, you see beauty and love and truth and justice and all of those issues, you see those always kind of coming to the surface everywhere in our culture. You see them in the movies that we watch, You see them in the the television shows that we watch. You see them in every ideology, every worldview, every religion, every political system. All are dealing with these at some level. They are at the core of what it means to be human. But even though we long for these things, that's why we're we're diving into John as it relates to it. Even though we long for these things, we never seem to get them quite right. Love can turn really, really selfish and be only about us. Justice is oftentimes denied. And, and what we hope will be the justice that will take place is not the justice that takes place. Beauty gets, gets defaced or it becomes something that we become obsessed with. Freedom is oftentimes taken and we become enslaved to things. Truth gets skewered. Oh my goodness. Truth gets skewered so often. Power gets abused and spirituality at times becomes like self-absorbed. It becomes like all just about me. Like we never seem to get these seven things quite right. In other words, the signposts are broken. So what we're doing in this series is we're looking at these seven signposts through the lens of the Gospel of John. Because John reminds us of what God has done in the past, what he is presently doing, and what he will do in the future to restore these broken signposts and to put things right. And he also reminds us of our role, like we have a role. This is not just us passively watching God do his thing, 
But what John reminds them is that we have a role in that restorative process. Now, today we're focusing on the the broken signpost of love. All of us, all of us were created to be loved and to love. I mean, just as, as human beings, God created us with the capacity to love and with the desire and need to be loved. That's just the way we have been created. We long to experience genuine love in our lives. And not just the romantic kind of love, not just kind of that that mushy, gushy feeling kind of love, but a love that is more holistic than that. And we don't have time today to go into all the different words that that uh, are used to describe love in the Greek language and agape love and phileo love and all of that, but we're talking about this holistic kind of love. Like we long to experience a love that is solid, a love that can, can be depended upon, that you, you know is there, you know is not going away. We long to experience a love that is unconditional, a love that is not rooted in our performance, that somehow we don't have to do something or perform in a certain way in order to receive someone's love. We long to experience a love that is permanent, that will stand the test of time, that that will not go away. We long to experience a love that is life-giving. And when I talk about life-giving, and and I I talk about this often when I do weddings, is, is that We talk about marriage is for life and love is for life. But when we're talking about for life, I'm not just talking about it quantitatively. It is for life quantitatively. It's for the rest of your life, but it's for life qualitatively. That it brings life into your being, into your personhood. That love is for life. Now, at its core, Love is all about relationship. Like the term love in and of itself is a reminder that we know, all of us as human beings, we know deep down inside that we need to be connected to something else, something beyond ourselves, something that we can delight in, something that we can treasure. We know down deep inside that we need to be connected to something else. Even when we've been burned, see, even at, even at our worst, even at our lowest, even when we've been profoundly burned by a relationship and we are at the point of cynicism and saying, enough of this. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. I am done with all of it. Still, still, we can't help ourselves. We have to love something. Maybe it's the love of the mountains or the love of the ocean or the love of a pet or the love of a hobby or the love of fantasy football or the love of Pizza King Pizza. Can I get it? Amen. Like we have to love something, whatever it is, we are just wired to love. The problem, of course, is that our love often takes on a destructive character. Love of country becomes national idolatry. Love of a particular hobby 
becomes all-consuming and it begins to control our life. We use the fact that we have fallen in love to justify all kinds of things that are outside of God's design for our lives. And sometimes we end up hurting the people that we love. Maybe by letting our emotions get away from us and and taking us down a path that we never intended to go. Or, Or maybe by clinging to things that we should let go of. Maybe by becoming obsessive in a relationship, or or maybe by letting go of things that we actually should hold tightly. And then, even when we get love right, even when we think we've got it all figured out, relationships are going well, uh, we're experiencing love, we are loving others, others are loving us, even when we get it right, we are reminded that love at its best is temporary. That sooner or later we will stand at the graveside of the people we love. Or they will stand at our graveside. The psalmist says it this way. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Let's close in prayer. Now, you say, wow, I came for a little hope today. You're like, thanks a lot. Wow. Um, So, is that it? Like, is that it? Like, is that it? Is the signpost of love, like, permanently broken? Are are we doomed to a life where either love continues to disappoint us or where it's cruelly ripped away from us? And the Gospel of John answers with an emphatic no. John reminds us that lasting genuine, authentic love exists and that we can experience it. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we see the links to which God goes to to make possible that we experience true love. John says in John 3.16, the most most known verse, I think, on the planet. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And you don't have to be a church person to know John 3.16. Like everyone knows John 3.16. You just have to watch an NFL football game to know John 3.16. Because there's always that guy at almost every game. Usually sitting right behind the goalposts of the team that scores the most touchdowns with the big sign that says John 3.16. It is such a well-known verse. And John 3.16, even though it's this famous, famous verse, it's one of the most famous verses about love in John, but it's not all John has to say about love. Love permeates like almost every page of the Gospel of John. John reminds us, that the gospel is the greatest love story that the history of the world has ever seen. And, and, and at the very center, the one at the very center of this love story is Jesus. Everything the Bible has to say about love, in fact, everything the Bible has to say about life is ultimately embodied in this one person. In Jesus. 
N.T. Wright describes it this way. He says it's like taking the great pyramids of Egypt and turning the pyramids. I don't know if you've ever been to Egypt, if you've ever seen the pyramids. I had the opportunity to go and to see the pyramids and they're absolutely massive and the stones are, are massive. Each block is over two tons and, and, and the total, there's like two million blocks in the pyramids, which means there's about six million tons of block. And, and N.T. Wright said, it's like taking the great pyramids and, and turning them upside down so that all of that, all of those stones, all, all two million of those stones, all six million tons of that weight, all comes to bear on this one single little point. He says that's the way that John is helping us to understand who Jesus is. He is declaring, John is declaring that the whole pyramid of created life from the beginning of time to the end of time is balanced, is balanced on this one singular person. John says that you, you can't just try to gain an understanding of God. You can't just try to gain an understanding of God's love and the depth of God's love and then try to fit Jesus into the picture. That you have to do it the other way around. You have to start with Jesus and through Jesus you begin to understand God. Through Jesus you begin to understand the world. Through Jesus you begin to understand God's love for the world. John invites us to see God and all of God's creation through the lens of Jesus. In fact, John starts his gospel by reminding us of that very fact. This is how John's gospel starts. And it's so well known. But sometimes I think maybe we haven't read this in light of what I just said. Listen to how John starts. In the beginning, in the beginning was the word talking about Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Everything that was made, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, all life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that word became flesh. And he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, some of you are familiar because you're familiar with this text. Some of you are familiar with the fact that the phrase made his dwelling, that's interpreted here, made his dwelling, is actually the term, it literally means tabernacled. That the God of the universe in Jesus the God of the universe tabernacled with his people, with the people who he created. 
Now, the tabernacle and then eventually the temple were seen as the dwelling place of God here on earth. So by saying that Jesus tabernacled among us, John is saying that the the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament temple was actually pointing to another tabernacle, was actually pointing to another temple. And that tabernacle, that temple is Jesus. It was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the place where God's glory and presence has come to dwell. Now, here's what's so important to understand about the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, Sometimes we talk about this, that Jesus tabernacled among us. And we think about the tabernacle just simply as a place of retreat. Like it's the place in which you find safety. It's the place in which you go in and, and, and just have this, this intimate presence with God. That, it, that it's the place in which you're able to retreat from the world. And all of that is true. But when you really understand what the, what the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple were about, you realize that it was about, it was about way more than that. That the tabernacle and the temple were never intended to just be a safe place to go and meet God and to retreat from the world. It was never intended that the people of God would just kind of huddle together in the tabernacle while the rest of the world went to hell. The the tabernacle and the temple were always meant to reflect God's love For the whole world, the tabernacle was the reminder that that God wants everyone to find find their dwelling in him. That God wants everyone to experience his power. That God wants everyone to experience his presence. That God wants everyone to experience his glory. Everyone to experience his love. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that you can't love Jesus and not love the world. It's impossible to love Jesus and not love the world because the tabernacle you have entered loved the world so much that he laid down his life for the world. So it's impossible to love Jesus and not love the world. You can't love Jesus and not love your spouse. You can't love Jesus and not love your neighbor. You can't love Jesus and not love your classmate. You can't love Jesus and not love the people that you work with. You cannot love Jesus and not love the people who are different than you. The people who drive you crazy. The people you disagree with. And Jesus makes all of that crystal clear in chapter 13 when he says this. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By this, another way to say it. By this, everyone out there will know that you have tabernacled with me. 
By this, everyone will know that you have entered into the tabernacle. Not because you've retreated from the world just to have this little personal thing with God, but because being in the tabernacle that loved the world so much that it died for the world, you love them that much. And so you express that love to others, even in the difficult relationships in your life. John is reminding us that love at its best is always on the move. <laughs> love at its best is always on the go. It's always being passed from one person to another person to another person. We become the person we were created by God to be when we give and receive love. Chapter 13 is actually a kind of a inflection point as you read through the Gospel of John. It's kind of an inflection point in this love story that John is telling. And that's really what the Gospel of John is. It's a love story. And when you look back from chapter 13, you see that everything that Jesus has done up to this point is an act of love. When Jesus confronts Nicodemus and he tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again, it's an act of love. When, when Jesus engages the Samaritan woman and reminds her that, the, that Israel's Messiah is her Messiah too, it's an act of love. When Jesus heals the sick and feeds the hungry, it's an act of love. When Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb and then raises him from the grave, it's an act of love. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. All of these acts of love. And then you get to chapter 13. And it continues this theme, but it is kind of this inflection point in the story. Because now it is the Passover. And Jesus has gathered with his disciples. And he's about to be betrayed. And he's about to be tried. And he's about to, to be crucified. And he's about to go through all of this horrendous, horrendous stuff. And he gathers with his disciples. And one of the things he does, and we talk about it every time we take communion, is he, he, he takes the two of the elements that are on the Passover table and he invests them with new meaning and, 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 and he says, this is my body and this is my blood and he reminds them of, of what he's about to do. But then John, John describes something else that happened in the room that evening. And this is the way John describes it. It was just before the Passover feast and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So Jesus got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist and after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And when he had finished washing their feet, 
He put on his clothes and he returned to his place and he said, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so because that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. Now Jesus washing his disciples' feet as he's preparing to go to the cross was a symbolic act of what he is about to do. And sometimes we lose sight of that when we talk about this foot washing that Jesus does. I grew up in a church that practiced foot washing every Every year on uh, Monday, Thursday, on Holy Week, uh, leading up to Easter, we would gather as a church and we would, we would wash one another's feet. We've done that here at Fairfax. We've done that in our service at times. We've done that in other settings at times. It's a beautiful, beautiful symbol. And, and in the church that I grew up in, the focus, and rightly so, the focus when we participated in that was on servanthood and that we are called to serve others and and to take the posture of a servant and Jesus took the posture of a servant and he washed the disciples feet and all of that is absolutely and totally true but there's a reason that this story is placed and this happened right before Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. I mean, Jesus could have washed his disciples' feet anytime that he wanted to kind of say, hey, I want you to, I want you to be servants, and, and here's a symbol to remind you to be a servant. But this is about more than just saying, I want you to be a servant. Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet as he's preparing to go to the cross was a symbol of what he is about to do on the cross. It was an act of humility, it was an act of service, it was an act of self-giving love, and that's exactly the kind of love he's about to show them as he goes to the cross. John starts this passage by saying that Jesus is about to show his disciples, and all of us, by the way, the full extent of his love. Now, it's not that he hasn't loved his disciples up to this point. He's loved his disciples up to this point. But now he is about to show them the full extent of his love. The Greek phrase there is telos, which means to the goal or to the end or to the utmost. And John is saying that in Jesus there is nothing that love could do, that love did not do. Let me say it again. In Jesus, there is nothing that love could do that love did not do. Jesus loved us as much as he could possibly loved us. According to John, he loved us to the end. He loved us to the utmost. He showed us the full extent of his love. 
In John 15, Jesus says it this way, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now from this point on, everything in John's narrative is an act of love as well. Enduring the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, the clandestine arrest in the garden, the unjust trial, the mocking of the crowd, the unspeakable cruelty of the cross. All of those, all of those, all of those are acts of love. They're the culmination of this incredible love story, the greatest love story that the world has ever known, a love story that costs everything. And John is saying, this is how God loves the world. And he's saying, this is how God loves you. And he's saying, this is how you should love others. This is how God loves the world. This is how God loves you. This is how you should love others. Now, all of this love talk sounds really super sweet, right? Like, all you need is love. Like, and you don't even need John to remind you of that. The Beatles will remind you of that, right? Like, there's all kinds of things in the world that can remind you of, like, love and the importance of love and so many of the songs that are written and so many movies that are done and novels that are written and all of that are about the importance of love. Everybody talks about love and there's all of this conversation about love and everyone is saying, yeah, love is so important. All you need is love. Love is everything. We just need to love each other. Like, like that's just true in culture, but what John is reminding us of is that love, the way that it's described here, the kind of love that God has for the world, the kind of love that God has for you, the kind of love that God wants you to show others is not easy. He reminds us that when true love is on the move, so are the dark forces of evil. The enemy despises love and will do everything possible to derail love. The cross is a reminder that true love, genuine love, ultimate love, will almost always encounter misunderstanding. It will almost always encounter at times hostility. It will encounter suspicion. It will encounter plotting. It may even encounter violence. But the message of John and the message of the whole gospel is that God's love is more powerful than evil. That's the message of John. God's love is more powerful than evil. In fact, God's love that takes the worst, God's love is what takes the worst evil, the worst that evil can do, and it absorbs it. It, it takes the worst that evil can do, and it brings it into itself. And in so doing, it defeats it. Paul says in Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He did not allow the evil that he was experiencing to overcome him. But he overcame evil with good. Some of you, no doubt, are dealing with some stuff. That feels like it's about to overcome you. That feels pretty overwhelming. That feels pretty dark. That feels like I'm not quite sure how to get out from under this. And maybe you wouldn't describe it as evil. And maybe even evil is not the best description for it. But it's some incredibly challenging stuff. And it feels like you're being overcome by it. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's in a relationship, another relationship. Maybe it's in the midst of something else that you are dealing with. Whatever whatever it is, it's just hard to love in the midst of what feels like is overwhelming you and you are being overcome by it. And your first inclination, because I think this is just our human inclination, your first inclination is to strike back. Or maybe your first inclination is just to disengage. Maybe your first inclination is to just walk away. Just say, I'm not going to deal with this. Like our first inclination is to, is to probably do one of those things. Either strike back, either hurt back, or walk away, disengage. And not in a, not in a good way of disengagement, in a way of just saying, I'm not going to deal with the hard stuff right now. But when you love the way that Jesus loved... It just won't allow you to do that. Like as much as we want to, as much as that's our inclination, as much as that's our desire in the moment, that when you love the way that Jesus loved, it just simply will not allow you to do that. True love, Christ-like love, takes the worst that evil can do And it absorbs it. It takes it into itself. It defeats it. It is not overcome by evil, but overcomes evil with good. And insert whatever word you want to insert there if evil doesn't really describe what it is that you're dealing with. That overcomes evil with good that overcomes arrogance with good, that overcomes selfishness with good, that overcomes self-absorption, self-centeredness with good, that overcomes apathy with good. Whatever it is, it is overcome by this power of God at work in our lives. 
And the reason, the reason, the reason that we have that power, the reason that saying that is not just like pie in the sky, by and by, oh, isn't that nice? Yes, we need to grit our teeth and do that. I know that's what God is calling me to do. The reason that this is real, the reason that this can be accomplished, the reason that we actually can live that way is because we are in relationship with the one who overcome, who overcame our evil with good, who overcame our messed upness with good, who did not run away from us, who did not distance himself from us, who did not become apathetic toward us, who did not strike back at us but overcame my evil with good. That overcame your evil with good. And because you are in relationship with the one who overcame your evil with good, that it empowers you to love in that same kind of way. God, you know what we're dealing with. You know the challenges in our life. You know the things that we struggle with. You know the stuff that's going on in our marriage, in our homes, in our workplace, in other relationships at school. You know all of the stuff that is going on. You know where it's hard to love. You know where it's tough to live this stuff out. But Lord, we are thankful that we are in relationship with a God who has not run away, has not become apathetic, has not, has not distanced himself, has not struck back at us, but who has loved us, has not been overcome by evil, but has overcome evil with good. So I pray for two things specifically today. I pray that the love that you have shown to us, that we can show it to others. And I pray for anyone who is here today, anyone who is online hearing this message, anyone who hears this message later, that has never experienced your love in their lives, that today they would pray a simple prayer Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me on the cross. Thank you for not running away from my brokenness and my sin. Thank you for giving yourself as a sacrifice for my sin. I say yes to your forgiveness and your grace and your eternal life and your love. In the name of